I became fascinated with looking at things where they fall in a, for lack of a better word, on a timeline. You might find out something about that story that could not be anything but God. Now you're reading that and you're thinking, why do I care about idiots? Yeah, and listening to it going, I don't want to listen to this podcast. <laughs> exactly. I'm a snake. I'm a slitherous snake. I'm a snake of snake. <laughs> you have the potential to do great evil or to do great good. Because what you see when you begin to look at history is that we're all connected. This is History Through the Eyes of Faith with Angie Ferris, and I'm your host, Frank Raines Jr., along with producer Wes. Thanks for listening. So episode 10 of um, History Through the Eyes of Faith. Um, I'm excited about this episode. I'm very excited about this episode. And only recently have I decided to become excited. No, I was already excited, but I, I realized we're going to be talking about something that um, I found fascinating. And it's going to be in this episode. So we were at uh, episode nine, um, uh, Ray, Rahab, Rahab um, had uh, taken in, uh, hidden some people, protected them. Kind of makes me feel like Sound of Music a little bit. You know, the Von Trapps are hiding in the uh, convent. Yeah. And, but that's not the case. They're in the walls of Jericho hiding. And um, she has uh, offered them some help. And I'll let you take it from there. So she offered them help. She hid them in order that they would save her and her family when they came back to destroy Jericho. So the spies have gone back to the camp. Now the people are preparing to cross the Jordan River. So they're crossing the Jordan River into Jericho, which we won't do a long dive on this. Just if you have any, do you have any associations with the Jordan River? Like when I say crossing the Jordan River, is that anything for you? Well, Jordan is referenced a lot in like spirituals. In spirituals and songs. And I think about Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Yeah. Coming forward to carry me home. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? Coming forward to carry me home. Band of angels coming after me. Coming. So this like, and there's a lot of reference when you cross the Jordan is like going over into heaven. Mm-hmm. So Jordan is the entrance. Crossing the Jordan is the entrance and the exit out of in and out of the promised land. Yeah. So there's another story later on in the prophets, which we won't touch. So I'll mention it here, but Elijah is one of the prophets. And when he leaves, he is actually taken up to heaven God sends a chariot for him. So where Joshua is fixing to enter the promised land and go through Jericho as the first city, when Elijah leaves, exits before he's taken up the chariots, he comes back through the same cities that we see Joshua entering from. And that's on down the road. Yeah, it's on down the road, later on in the road. But the point being that the Jordan is this, it's a big deal crossing the Jordan, okay? And so Mm. this is the first time that happens. And it's also the parting of the sea, much like the Red Sea. We just don't talk about that as much. But an interesting thing happens here that I think is really cool. So I'm going to start reading in Joshua chapter four. I think this is verses uh, two and three. Take for yourselves, this is God telling Joshua, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe. We've heard that Which before. Which is similar to before. And command them saying, take up for yourselves 12 stones 
from here out of the middle of the Jordan. So while the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan, the waters are parted. These 12 men are each supposed to get a stone from the place where the priest's feet are standing firmly and carry them over with you and lay them down in the encampment where you will spend the night. Then later in that chapter, now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. As for those 12 stones, which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set them up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come in the future, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, so that the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So what he's telling them there. He's making a marker yeah, to remind them and future generations when they ask the question what God has done. And I think this is a big, it's a really big thing for me, but I think it's an important thing for our life that we need markers to remember what God has done in our lives. That's a good point. We need um, to remember an important part of who we are. Being, being able to remember is an important part of who we are. Over and over and over and over again, the Bible says, remember. Remember, 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 which is why we're doing history through the eyes of faith, to hear the story and to be reminded to remember. So our memories shape us. So all throughout my house, you will see things that you can ask that have a story. They have a story and they're there. And when I see them, they remember, they remind me of things. Okay. Mm -hmm. Remembering the uh, faithfulness of God helps us to persevere. So. I just like that story. Well, I'm curious about that story is if those 12 stones have, have, did they, were they preserved or is, I mean, can you go where those stones are today? I have, I have no idea. A little side project you can look up. I do know one thing from traveling and going to ancient places. Like when I was in Rome, Rome is a city that's been active for thousands of years And so what was happening a couple of thousand years ago has been built on top of and built on top of. So stones sitting out somewhere that were sitting out in 1200 B.C. or whenever that was, 1400 B.C., are not just going to be sitting out. Something would be on top of them. Now, whether you could find the spot and excavate, I don't know. But Yeah. Yeah. So... That's just a cool story that you kind of just slide over. A, a marker yeah, to remember. Yeah, and we forget. So we have a card that says Crossing the Jordan for that reason, because we want to have markers to remember what God's done in our life. Um, and it's also entering into the Holy Land. So the first city they come to is Jericho. And if you watch Veggie Tales, you might know Joshua and the Big Wall, one of the favorites at our house. Mm-hmm. The French peas up on top of the wall, very, very entertaining. You want to? Well, that sounds like something that, else. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. What? You don't know uh, the French pea on top of the wall? Oh, yeah, yeah, another story. It's Monty Python. Yeah. The Holy Grail. Yeah, so they have the French peas. I up will there going, talk to you a second time. Yes, so they talk like that in Joshua and the Big Wall, and it's really cool. Okay. Well, but I guess they're just anyway, trying to, yeah. Do you remember how the walls of Jericho fall? Trumpets. They just march around. They march yeah. around day after day after day, and then the trumpets blows and they Josh fall down. The battle of Jericho, exactly. Jericho, Jericho. Francine Rivers talks about this story, and and she says, and she Is just Francine getting a cut. Yeah, I, she should be. It's the third. She episode. talks about how the fear inside of the people of just hearing this incessant marching every day, 
every day, every day. And I did a little side research on Jericho when I was preparing for this. And one of the interesting things is there are a lot of earthquakes in that area. So the idea that these thousands or a million people marching and marching and marching in a place that's faulty, who knows, you know, and then you blow the trumpet and the walls fall down. Mm-hmm. Kind of interesting. Okay, so Jericho is only the first of many cities, and then the whole book of Joshua is telling about all of these battles. So it continues with the Israelites conquering the promised land and God giving the people into their hands, as the as the Bible puts it. Why was the uh, why do you think that it was that there were that God didn't like clear the people out of the land and then bring the Israelites in? Rather, it's the Israelites are moving them a little well, bit at I'm a just time. Just thinking and top of my head, um, maybe that 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 instills in his people a sense of uh victory, a sense of confidence, a sense of um overcoming their fear. Yeah, because it is showing God's power and he yeah. is doing it for them. But also I think he the Bible tells us it's so that the land would be tended. So there would be food to eat when they got there. If it had been abandoned there wouldn't be the crops being watered and the things being taken care of. So when they arrive, there's houses and there's food ready mm-hmm. so yeah. that, that they have a place to live. So that's kind of a cool thing, too. So you arrive at the end of the book of the jo- of Joshua. All the conquering is not quite complete, but you've been told while it is what has been done and which tribe is where. And you're also told what's left and that God's going to take care of that. Um the end of in chapter Joshua chapter 23. Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side. And Joshua was old and advanced in years. Okay. So that kind of sets up the end of Joshua and his speech. Each tribe has been assigned their specific region by God through Moses to Joshua. Now something that we didn't um, particularly mention at the time. You remember back when we were talking about Melchizedek? Mm-hmm. And we were talking about the priests were going to come from the tribe of Levi. Yeah. So during the establishing of the tabernacle, we didn't mention this, but the Levites were pulled out to be the priest. Yeah. And Moses was told that when they got to the promised land, the Levites don't get a particular area. They get a few cities that they can live in, Mm -hmm. but they don't have like the agricultural area to farm and to make a living off of. All the other tribes do. And we talked about how Joshua's tribes really divided into his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and that's how we get 12. So we take the 11, yeah, take out Joshua and create two. Yeah. So the Levites are, um, they're the priests, and the way they're supported is that everyone else gives a tithe to the priest for their living. Yeah, which is... Interesting. Yeah. It's very so, so to today. Well, so the reason for the tithe in the Bible is to support the upkeep of the temple and the people who do that. So it is a gift back to God for the for the purpose of supporting those who are serving the Lord. So outside of the Levites, everybody else has been assigned their signed their tribe, and now Joshua's getting ready to die, and he makes this speech where he says the words. He asks them, "Choose this day whom you will serve." Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is supposed to be that God will be their king. So he's telling them, 
God's going to be your king now. I've led you here. He's brought you into the land and you have all these rules. And he reminds them, don't intermarry. Don't take on foreign idols. Serve only the Lord your God and and choose whom you're going to serve. And Joshua, if you read the context of that, Joshua seems doubtful that they're really going to serve the Lord. Because yeah. you had a verse that you wanted to share in well, Joshua. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... Um... It's very popular. We see it a lot. We see it printed in places. And, but when you read the verse in its entirety, I think we'll be able to see something there. Yeah. Let me get my glasses. Okay. Make noise while I get it ready here. All right. It's uh, Joshua 24, verse 15. I'll read 14 and 15. Okay. Um, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. That's what you were saying that he was saying to them. Throw away all the gods, throw away the gods your forefathers worshiped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you'll reserve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And that's the verse that you see all over the place. So he's he's kind of saying, you haven't done this before. You've been serving these other gods, and your forefathers served these other gods. You choose whom you're going to serve. But as for me and my household, and just the way that's worded kind of sounds like, mm-hmm. I'm not sure you're going to do it. I don't know what you're going to do. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this then ends the book of Joshua. They're now living in the promised land. And we come into the next book, which is called what? Judges. Judges. And I looked this up on the timeline, so I would have it when I came here. The period of the judges begins about 1370 BC. Okay. So that gives us a little marker. So when you were asking, like, when was the, the other, like, 1400 BC, 1500 BC, because at 1370, we're entering the period of the judges. So I want to do a little side <clears> reference <throat> here to, to read about what, in general, the period of the judges is. K. Author has a uh, book called the Inductive Study Bible. Highly recommend it. That's it sitting right there. I'll try to put a link up for it. And it's got great study reference tools inductive. in it. Inductive. Inductive Study Bible. It's got great study tools in it. And it's designed so that you, if you know anything about K. Arthur and Precept Ministries, it's designed so that you write the outlines and write the notes and do the study. So there's a lot of study materials, but they're not in the text. The text is real clean. The text has cross-references, and that's about it. So she has a great section in there called Major Events in Israel's History, and it's several pages. So I want to read what she says about the period of the judges. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and the elders, and then there arose a generation who did not know Joshua. Sounds kind of like before, right? Did not know uh, Joseph. Yeah. And the children of Israel served the gods of the people of Canaan and did not and did evil in the sight of the Lord. So Joshua's a gone. A generation comes up that doesn't know Joshua. Now they're serving the gods of the people of Canaan and not and did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of their enemies. He let them go because they weren't serving him. But when the people cried out to the Lord in their distress under the oppression of these enemies, God raised up judges from among the people. 
And so there was one judge raised up at a time. And God was with each judge all the days of his life. But when the judge died, the cycle of sin and slavery repeated itself. So they start serving the other gods. Mm -hmm. God lets them do what they're choosing to do. As Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. Mm -hmm. They end up in slavery. God raises up a judge to deliver them. So over and over again, he's coming back in faithfulness. There was no visible king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was to be a theocracy, think about that word, with God as king. That was the plan. But the people did not obey their God. So they didn't have a king on purpose. God was to be their king. So the book of Judges mentions 12 leaders who are said to judge Israel. And I have their names here. I'll just throw them out. I think maybe you have something you want to say about some of them. Um, Othanil, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jer, Jephath, Ibzon, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. The first book of Samuel mentions two more judges, Eli and Samuel. And that's the period of the judges. And some of those names, like we, we know stories about some of those names, some of them we have no idea about. So, did you have something you want to... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, he's excited about this. I'm excited about it. Because I was reading Judges... And I got to Ehud or Ehud? Ehud sounds good. Ehud. Second one in my list. Yeah, and I think he was the second because it's in the third chapter of Judges. And I'm reading about Ehud. He was a judge. It says, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and it gave him a deliverer, Ehud or Ehud. Ehud. I'm going to say Ehud. It's E-H-U-D. Just go with it. Uh, And it says here, this is what I find interesting about reading this text. Because I think, you know, I've always thought the Bible, oh my gosh, you know, therefore and hitherto and all the words. Mm-hmm. And it says, <laughs> but, but when they get real specific, uh, and gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, mm. the son of Jerah, the Benjamite, so the, the tribe of Benjamin. So it specifically says a left-handed man. Why does it say that? Well, I'm going to tell you why it says that. Do you know the story? So I've read good. it before, but I'm not it's remembering good. it. It's good. The Is- I don't know why this is not. The Israelites sent him, sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, mm. which he strapped to his right thigh. Which means it, it cuts on the way in and on the way out. Under his clothing. <gasps> so he's left-handed. He's got it strapped to his right thigh. He presented the tribute, which I guess a tribute is an offering, a gift, to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man, says it here. And so when I'm reading, I'm like, who was a very fat man? I'm like, okay, all right, Bible, judges, we're getting into something here. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. So like, all right, we got it. Y'all go ahead. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, quiet. And all his attendants left because he's excited. He's going to get this secret message Mm -hmm. from Ehud. And I have an idea what the secret message may be (laughs) so far. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And this is starting to sound like Sly Stallone or Schwarzenegger here too. You know, I'm about to get it. Uh, as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. 
this is where we <laughs> this is some Game of Thrones right here, okay? Yeah. Even the handle sank in after the blade, Ooh. which came out his back. Mm. Ehod did not pull the sword out, mm. and the fat closed in over it. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, okay. That hurts. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. So he's hiding out on the porch, shut the door. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said... He must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. So like he's in the bathroom or something. We're going to just wait out here. They waited to the point of embarrassment. That's what it says. But but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked it. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with whom with him leading them. So that's where he takes over. But I just thought I could see that. I could see because I watched Game of Thrones and other <laughs> shows like that. Uh, this is, I just found Eha just took, you know. So does it help? Like the summary I read from K. Arthur place Ehud for you in a timeline. Oh yeah, yeah. There's judges that come, and then so obviously then, whoever this king was, those people were oppressing the Jewish people. Yeah, yeah. And then, Moab. And then I think just this chapter, I think it ends with, uh, yeah, it just like a couple verses later, it says that day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. Okay. And then it goes on and says, after Ehud came Shagmar, son of Anath. So yeah. So it's just ending. going into the next story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very. Just, it's a very descriptive story. Specific, visual. This is what he did, took over. And then 80 years is going, and then then this other judge mm-hmm. comes along. Okay. So that happens throughout the whole book, and you go through all 12 judges. <clears throat> and I think this is, and I heard somebody teaching on this a few years ago, that as you go through the judges, they be, kind of become less and less righteous. Like the methods are a little bit shadier. You're kind of questioning, you know, I mean, it's just, but it's the gradual decay of all the people, like just straying further and further away over time. So we're going to, the third woman in the lineage of Jesus, her story happens during the time of the judges. I might know her name. She actually has her own book. No, that I don't know. It's a separ- I know who that is now. It's a separate book, but it occurs during the period of the judges. And so, who is this person then? It's going to be Ruth. It's Ruth. Okay. So, let me tell you about Ruth's story. Are we at a point where we can do that? Are we good? Yeah. We're going to have a little background noise, some adjusting in the beanbags. If you listen to episode nine, yeah, you're aware that we have beanbags in the Eyes of Faith studio. Yes. So, the tale doesn't start in Israel, but in Moab, the very country that this Ehud went and killed the king mm-hmm. many years Earlier, probably. I'm not sure where in the timeline of Judges this happens. But the Israelite Naomi and her husband Elimelech, 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 and her two sons, Malon and Shilion, were during a famine in Judah. So there was a famine in Judah. Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and goes to Moab to find work and food because they have none. And while they're in Moab, her husband dies. And her son, her her husband has died there, and her sons have married Moabite women. 
one named Ruth and one named Orpah. When the story opens, Naomi's sons have just died. Okay? So she's three times bereaved of any provider. Her husband's dead and each of her sons is dead. There's nobody to provide for her. But daughter-in-law. Well, Naomi decides to go back to Judah because she's heard that the Lord had given food to the people in Bethlehem. And so she urges Ruth and Orpah to stay with their parents. Their parents live here. Mm -hmm. Their husbands are dead. There's no reason for you to go with me. You stay here. And Orpah agrees to do that, but Ruth refuses with the resounding words. And these are words that get used a lot. You hear Christians use these words. This is Ruth speaking to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she has no reason to do this, but she says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus and more may the Lord do to me if anything but death part me from you. So Francine Rivers has written this story. Mm -hmm. And one of the points that I think is so cool that is here, obviously, if she's willing to make that confession, Ruth has been exposed to Judaism through marrying into this family, and she is now choosing to serve Naomi and her God over her own parents and her own homeland. Yeah. And so because she's made this promise, and actually that verse gets used in a lot of weddings, and actually that verse is is inscribed in my husband's wedding ring. Oh, okay. So that was the verse that That's... I gave to him at our wedding. Okay? So... Together, these two then journey to Naomi's former home in Bethlehem, which is not like you just catch a bus and you're there. And that comes out in the story, too. Well, it's they tough. Have, they didn't have buses. No. It's tough for two women traveling by themselves, okay? Mm -hmm. So, But once they get there, they have to provide for themselves. And it's since it's the time of the barley harvest, Ruth decides to glean from a field. Now, they're, when you're back there reading all those laws... One of the rules for the, for the people working in the field that was given to Moses is to leave grain for the poor and the indigent to come behind and clean up. Like, don't go back and scrape your field and get everything you dropped. Leave it for people who need it to come. So mm -hmm. when she says glean from the field, that's what Ruth is doing. She's going to the field to go along behind the workers and pick up the stuff that's left. And although she doesn't know it, the field she chooses belongs to a wealthy kinsman of Elimelech named Boaz. Now, a little side note. Guess whose Boaz's parents are? Tamar and Salmon. Correction, Rahab. Really? Yes. So Boaz would be the closest living, or he's the next to the closest meal. He's one of the possibilities of somebody who could take on responsibility for Naomi and Ruth because he's related to Elimelech. So he says, a wealthy kinsman of Elimelech. When Boaz visits the field and hears of Ruth's loyalty to his kin, Naomi, he instructs his workers to allow her to glean unmolested, not to bother her, and even to leave additional grain for her. And meanwhile, in seeking to find a husband for Ruth, Naomi advises Ruth to go to the threshing floor on the night when she knows Boaz is going to be there for winnowing the barley and to wash and prepare herself and get all done up and to uncover Boaz's feet and lie next to him while he sleeps. So which is an intimate move to make. But Ruth does that, and when Boaz awakes, he's startled to find Ruth at his feet, and she asks him to spread his robe over her, a symbol, uh, which is an act of wedding, okay? And because, or at least engagement, because Boaz is a redeeming kinsman, kinsman that is, he's one who has the right to redeem Elimelech's property, and at the same time to marry his son's widow, 
so as to perpetuate the name of the deceased upon his estate, like we had talked about before, back mm. with Tamar and Judah. Judah. So Boaz, impressed that Ruth has chosen him, an older man out of the out of family loyalty, agrees with enthusiasm to have her, and they work out some legal details, and they're married, and they have a son whose name is Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. So even though we're not there in the story yet, we have Ruth being David's great-grandmother and Tamar being David's great-great-grandmother. Correction, Rahab. So let let me ask a question. Yes. The book of Judges talks through the judges. Right. Ruth is mentioned in here. Is she? Well, you said that she No, it, her her story occurs during that time during period. During that time. But okay. I'm not she's at, I don't don't know that she's okay. actually mentioned in the book. Well, then let me ask this. When when history through the eyes of faith, when when the when the Bible, which is our history book, is put together, they list these what 12, 11, 13, how many judges? I think there's 12 in the book and two more when you get into 1 Samuel. Um for a reason. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the mic picked up my stomach just then. Did you hear it? I didn't, so maybe it didn't. Okay. Well, I'm hungry. Um, I just wonder where these stories, like we talked about Ehud, just one little chapter in the book of Judges and what he did. The question is, that's in there for a reason. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that reason is. Are we supposed to understand I think at the that? Very, I think at the very least, it's the overall picture mm-hmm. of the going away and God sending somebody to help them, and then they go away and God sends somebody and to help them. And they're making sure. And they're they going away and God sends somebody to help them, and this just is going on and on. And when I at say the very that, least, it's that. Then there's probably all kind of other meaning in there that can be found. But we're still trying to do a flyover. So, right, right, right. And yeah. that's one of the things is the flyover. So is, the card is Judges and Ruth. Yeah. Okay, because because we're pulling out those five women in the lineage of Jesus. Now here's a, a thing to think about. Is Ruth a Hebrew? I don't know. Well, we know we do know. Well, she's well, not I don't because know, she's a Moabite, remember? I don't remember. That's what okay. I'm saying. Well, I don't know. So Naomi goes to Moab and her sons marry Moabite women. So okay. Ruth is a Moabite. She's not a Hebrew. Okay. Was Rahab a Hebrew? No. No. She's in the wall. She's in Jericho. Mm-hmm. Was Tamar a Hebrew? I'm going to say no. No. For, she was a Canaanite woman because Judah went and married a Canaanite woman and his mm. son. So right there, this early in the story, the biological lineage of Jesus includes those that aren't born Jewish. And the Bible makes a point to point that out. So not only do their names get listed in Matthew, but their stories are told in the Old Testament. Right. Those were people in every case. Those women had faith in God, even though it was not, quote, their God. Yeah. You know, and, and we hear Rahab going, I've heard about your God, and, and Ruth going, whether you go, I will go, and your God will be my God. Okay? So, cool. So the last judge is Samuel. And his story is in 1 Samuel. Okay, so we're over into the next book. Mm-hmm. All right. And reading from K. Arthur's little section again on the end, uh, 
history of Israel. Finally, in the days of Samuel, then prophet and judge, the people insisted on having a king over them like the other nations. Although this request grieved Samuel, God gave them what they wanted, for they had rejected him, meaning they'd rejected God. I think that's kind of interesting, like the other nations. So here, reading from 1 Samuel 8, verses 6 through 9. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people regarding all that they say to you, because they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have abandoned me and served other gods, so they are going to do to you so they are doing to you as well. Now then, listen to their voice, however. You shall warn them strongly and tell them of the practice of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel goes into detail, and this is something that I would say I hadn't really thought about, but he explains to him like, you haven't had a king, and now you're going to have one, and the king's going to take your children and use them for warriors and for servants. He's going to take a tenth of all you have. They're going to take. He's going to take the best vineyards and the best livestock and use that for his work. He's going to take the best of your fields. Like, he, your life's going to be different. You say you want a king, but God mm-hmm. says, tell them what it's going to be like. And so this is what they say back in chapter 8, verse 19. Yet the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, so that we may be like all the nations, and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after, that, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the, in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint a king for them. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So why did they want a king? They wanted rules. They wanted to be like the... Na- well, they had rules. Yeah. They weren't well, following yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted nations. to be like the other nations, and they wanted the king to fight our battles. Do, do we know anyone who wants to be like the neighbor next door? Mm. Never Me. covet. That's a song that goes with the Don't Covet from the God's Top Ten children's musical. There we go. Well, it's also number 10 on the Ten Commandments. Right. That's the... Holding your hands out. Yeah. Never covet. Be above it. Coveting will get the best of you. So so here they're getting covet. They're coveting that king. Mm -hmm. We want somebody who's going to fight our battles for us. And we want to be like everybody else. So... The first king then is Saul. Yep. First king of Israel is Saul. In chapter 9 of Sam, 1 Samuel. Is that where he shows up? Samuel anoints Saul. He is not exactly obedient, and God has consequences for that. And Saul gets a bad attitude about it. So here's that story, which is all the way over in chapter 15. Okay? Doing... Uh, so starting with verse 16. So Samuel said to Saul, is it not true? This is after the story has happened and the story's kind of retold in this. So I'm just starting there. Samuel said to Saul, is it not true though? You were insignificant in your own eyes that you became the head of the, is it not true though you were insignificant in your own eyes that you became the head of the tribes of Israel? For the Lord anointed you as king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are eliminated. Hear those words? God said, Completely destroy the Amalekites and fight against them until they are eliminated. Why then, Samuel speaking to Saul, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Instead, you loudly rushed upon the spoils and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, what are the spoils? That's what you take away from the battle. Mm -hmm. So he's taking the spoils. Instead, you loudly rushed upon the spoils and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel, 
I did obey the voice of the Lord, for I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have completely destroyed the Amalekites. So he brings the king back, destroyed the rest of them. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things designated for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. We chose some of the good stuff to sacrifice to him, even though he told us to destroy all of it. Mm. Samuel said, does the Lord have as much delight? And this is the reason I wanted to read this, because this becomes a theme that's very important through the rest of the Old Testament and into the New. Samuel said, does the Lord have as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Yeah, I like that. God wanted Saul to obey him and destroy them all. Saul says, oh, I'll bring the king back, and we'll just pick, let the people pick the best ones, and we'll sacrifice them to God. Samuel's going, does the Lord have as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than a sacrifice, and to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as reprehensible as the sin of divination, which was a big deal sin. Rebellion. And insubordination is as reprehensible as false religion and idolatry. Since you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul. Saul. Rejected for being king. Because he did not obey. For a little while. But he's told then that that somebody else is going to take your place. Because of what? Because he didn't obey. Yeah. Because he had a better idea. Oh, I think God will like this. And yeah, Samuel let me, says, let me do this. I think this is a better idea. Yeah, that's, and Samuel says, no. Does the Lord have as much delight in burnt offerings as and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Right. So again, it may not make sense to me what God is telling me to do, but I show that I trust God through obedience. Now yeah, that's I, that'll preach for a long time. We can well, do lots of lots of podcasts on that. And I mentioned that in one of the earlier episodes is our our desire, our human nature desire to control. And if we do know what's going to happen in our future, then we're probably going to want to control that too. Yeah. So I'll say that again. It might not make sense to me, but I show that I trust God through obedience. So God is about consistently about trust and obey. Trust and obey. It's not a list of rules for the sake of rules. It's to show that you're that I'm first, that God is first. God is saying that I'm first. You shall have no other gods before me. Trust me. And he said he's got our best interest at heart, hasn't he, all along? He's taken to a promised land. He's providing for him. I Like, I have a plan. I have a future, okay? Okay, so Samuel is then led to anoint David as king. And there is a period of time between when he is anointed and when he actually becomes king, okay? Mm-hmm. So Saul is seeking to kill David, and David's running from him. Yeah, but we skip. We skip. What did we skip? Well, David comes on the scene. Yeah. Because he is the shepherd boy. Right. Yeah, David has a long story. And and one of the first stories about him is the famous yeah. David and Goliath story. Yeah, but, but he's not running from Saul until after that. 
until it's after that story, actually. And David, I don't know if you read the details after that story. David's actually, Saul seems to have some kind of like. Love, hate. Anxiety, mental, because he's he would get disturbed and David would play the harp for him to help soothe him. And David actually becomes a part of his court. And all of this is before. For yeah. David's anointed king. Okay, so that's like the backstory of David, yes. And there was a lot of back and forth. There's a lot that goes on, and so I'm not going into the details of all that. Bottom line is, David gets anointed king. Saul knows eventually that it's not going to be him. Saul is not happy with it, and he's seeking to kill David, and David is running from him. And this goes on for a long time. And at one point in that time, David actually has the opportunity to kill Saul. Like Saul comes into a cave where David mm. is hiding, and David doesn't. Because he recognized Saul at that point as God's anointed. Right. You're still king. I can't take your life. Right. So we're learning through all those stories the heart of David. We're learning because the story, the big part of, you know, we remember David. Well, maybe people don't remember, don't know the David and Goliath story. If you don't, go look it up, read it, Google it, whatever. Goliath is a giant. David kills him. Goliath is a Philistine. And David shows up on the battle. He's taken his brothers. It's to, to take food to his brothers. Yeah. And sees that everybody's chicken and nobody will fight this this giant. And he's like... I and killed he, animals of, uh, attacking the sheep. I yeah. Can, I can take care of this. So there, from the beginning, we see David's faith. Yeah. And he's insulted that these men will all stand here and let this giant and these people inf- insult their God and not defend and trust God. So we see David's heart through all of that. So David's running and eventually... He becomes king, okay? And David is described, If you'll hear this even now. I don't know if you've heard this phrase, but he's described as a man after God's own heart, Mm -hmm. okay? And that's speaking to his attitude, the position of David's heart. It's not necessarily speaking of his actions. Because when he's confronted with his sin, and we're going to talk about that story in just a minute, when he's confronted with his sin, what does he do? He repents, he turns. Whereas Saul copped an attitude like, oh, but I went and did da-da-da. Or, oh, but I went. The repentance makes the difference. Yeah, It's not what you did because we all mess up. It's the turning back to God. And so that's why he's called a man after God's own heart. Because, because he repents and he turns and he continues in faithfulness. He recognizes that he is sinful and that he's capable of, of sinning maybe even prone to sinning, okay? That's what we would say about so, ourselves. Let me pause you just for a second. Okay. Saul anoints, I mean, Samuel anoints Saul. Saul's king. Saul disobeys. He gets his his kingship taken away, taken away from him. Well, at that moment, he's just told it's <clears throat> going to be. Right. David comes along. And does does David enter the story as someone playing the harp for Saul to ease his mind? Is that how he enters into the story? I don't remember. I think he enters in Goliath and then play in the heart, but it could be the other way around. They're both kind of no, happening at the same time. it's before David and Goliath. David in Saul's service is in chapter okay. 16. Yeah. So he comes into Saul's service. Yeah, so so he is not anointed as king until a little bit later. But here, Samuel goes and anoints David before a long time before he actually becomes king. Once Saul knows that he will no longer be king, and Samuel knows that Saul is no longer the one God wants as king, he goes and anoints David. But then it's a long time before David's actually king. When Saul is finally 
killed and or dies. So David covers a lot of territory in the mm-hmm. Bible. Um, he's like Abraham and Moses in the biblical account. He seems to have this relationship with God, this talking with God, this repenting and turning and talking and conversing. He's the one who is allowed to uh, found Jerusalem. He establishes Jerusalem. He is allowed to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He's very expressive. We know that about him. He's dancing in the streets when the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem because one of his wives is not happy with him dancing naked in the streets. Hmm. He wrote most of the book of Psalms, right? which are prayers and songs and laments to God. And we get an opportunity as we read those Psalms to hear and see into David's heart. So he seems very real to us. We have a lot mm-hmm. of information about David. But because we tend to people, we as people tend to remember the bad first, what do you remember about David? What's the story you think of about David? Well, I think we're going to be, this is going to be where we end today. Like we're not going to tell the story? Well, we can tell, I can tell the story. Okay, that's good. That's good. But That's a good place. That, but the end of the story is when we're probably going to wrap up. But what people remember about David, I mean, a lot of people would say David and Goliath, right? But what you're referring to is him desiring a woman that was married. And so he sent her husband to the front lines so that he would be murdered or yeah. kill, killed so, in battle. So let me, let me tell the story. What's her name? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. And Bathsheba then becomes the fourth woman mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. So not only did it happen to David Mm -hmm. or by David or however you want to say it, it's through her that the lineage of Jesus comes. So David is the king and he lives on the highest point in the city. So the palace is on the highest point. So his roof is above all the other roofs. So that means from his roof, he can see all the other roofs. And the roof at that time was the coolest part of the house. Like literally the coolest, not like, oh, it's cool, Mm -hmm. but like the temperature (laughs) was low. That probably was the coolest part. Yeah. So it was often used as like a living room, a bedroom, a bathroom, whatever it took to avoid the inside heat of the house. And so the scriptures tell us that David is at home when his men are at war. So right there, there's a cue. Where's the king supposed to be when his men are at war? On the battlefield. Yeah, but he's not. He's at home. He's on the roof, and he sees Bathsheba, who is Uriah's wife, who was one of his soldiers that was away at war. Mm-hmm. So her, her husband's out fighting a war for him, and he sees her bathing. And rather than turning away, he continues to watch her. So there's many. So already, here's two mess-ups. He's home instead of at war. Mm-hmm. And when he sees her, he decides to watch her. Mm-hmm. And then he decides he wants her and he sends for her and he has an affair with her. Yeah. And, and she becomes pregnant. And when he finds out, he sends for her husband to come home thinking that he'll be with her and that then he could be considered the father of the child. But Uriah, because he's a good and faithful soldier, he comes home, but he refuses to go home to his wife when his brothers are out fighting a war, so he sleeps on the steps of the palace. So David feels like he has nothing else to do but arranges to send Uriah to the front lines where he's most likely to be killed, which he is. And so David takes Bathsheba as his wife, right? Now, Second Samuel chapter 12, enter the prophet Nathan, okay? A prophet is one who speaks for God. So God speaks through Nathan to David. And he comes to David and he says, 
There were two men in a city, the one wealthy. Nathan's telling David this story. There were two men in a city, the one wealthy and the other poor. The wealthy man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing at all except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nurtured, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat scraps from him and drink from his cup and lie in his lap and was like a daughter to him. Now a visitor came to the wealthy man, and he could not bring himself to take any animal from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. So the wealthy man took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this certainly deserves to die. So he must make restitution for the lamb four times over since he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You yourself are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. It is I who anointed you as king over Israel, and it is I who rescued you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and put your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. In other words, if you'd asked for more, if that wasn't enough, Mm -hmm. I would have given you more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck and killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife as your wife, and you have slaughtered him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses. Mm-hmm. He repented. And that, but there were consequences of his sin, and he's told those consequences. And one of it is that David's told by Nathan that the child that Bathsheba's pregnant with will, will not live. So later the Lord struck the child that Uriah's, that Bathsheba had born to David so that he was very sick. And David pleaded with God, and he fasted, and he prayed, and he wouldn't eat, and everybody was all worried about him. And when the child finally died, he was praying for the child, and when the when the child finally died after seven days of this, David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead because they said, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we tell him that the child is dead since he might do himself harm? But David heard them and saw them whispering together and perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David got up from the ground, washed, anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he asked that he served him, when he asked for food, they served him and ate. And they said, what is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you got up and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, and the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'm going to him, but he will not return to me. I wanted to include that extra part of the story, which we don't talk about all the time, because David comforts Bathsheba and goes in and sleeps with her, and then she gives him another son, which is named Solomon. But see, David knows that God's heart is as gracious and merciful. So even though he's been told that the child's going to die, he still pleads for the child to live. And at the same time, he's willing to accept God's decision when the child dies and get up and move forward. So to me, it's kind of an example of how to deal with repentance. I I was wrong. 
There's consequences for my wrong. I repent and turn. I can still plead to God. I can still cry out to God. I can still share my heart with God. That's what David's telling us to do. Yeah, he didn't feel like he he was turned away. From right. God. And it, it, he shared his heart, but then he accepted God's decision that the child would die. And mm-hmm. he goes on. So um, there we are with the birth of Solomon, which then ends up in that lineage of Jesus. Any comments, thoughts, questions about that? Yeah. Story? Yeah. Go ahead. About the child? I or got, any I, other. I've got a story. Yeah. And I thought it would be a good wrap-up story. Yeah. So anything else to say about that? No. I mean, I think, I mean, I've been reading the Psalms, his his poetry, his songs to the Lord, uh, who David is, man after his own, uh, the Lord's own heart. I think a lot of people use David as a, you know, uh, a person to reference. Um, as well. anyway, There's... Men that create men's ministries around David as their example of a man that's not perfect, but a man that repents. Um, so yeah, I have something to say, but it's it's not a a reverent thing. That's it's okay. a more comedic thing. That's fine. And I was trying We're to good. get to the end for it to be a comedic thing. Yeah. As we wrap up this episode, sounds good. But as we wrap it up, we're at David now as king. Yes. And his. And and Bathsheba has had a second son named Solomon. And I'm sure Solomon might be where we pick up. Exactly. Okay, next time. Yeah, so do you want me to review? Crossing the Jordan, Battle of Jericho, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Saul, David, Bathsheba. Yeah. Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Saul, David, Bathsheba. So the story I want to tell as we get to the end of episode 10 Thanks for staying with us. You probably heard my stomach several times. There's food in front of me that I cannot eat while on the mic, but I'm famished. David and Bathsheba. I don't know if I've told you this story before, but this would have been around 2005 or six. I'm in technology sales and I was on a sales call with the um, owner of this organization that had hotels, uh, a TV show. I mean, this guy, I'm not going to say his name, but he's a mogul in a part of this state, okay? People know who he is that... I ran into a guy a month ago that knew who this guy is. He might still be alive, I'm not sure. But we, we were called to his home for this meeting, Okay? And we're like, oh, this is going to be interesting. We're the, the owner of this company, we're going to his house. We go to his house. It's not an impressive home. It, um, I won't go into detail of the house. It was just odd. He's in his kitchen in like a Hawaiian shirt, hat and shaved, shorts. Um, and there's empty gin bottles all around. And it kind of appears that he's been drinking a while. And we're now there to talk to him about his technology and how we can help. And he says, as he meets, there's three of us, as he shakes our hand, he says, what's your name? Where are you from? True story. This is a true story. What's your name? Where are you from? Would you take a bath with a woman that's not your wife? No, 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 no. Sorry, that that was the third question. Sorry. That was the fourth question. Name, where are you from? Are you a Christian? And would you take a bath with a woman that's not your wife? That was the fourth question. 
And we're like, well, this is going to be an interesting meeting. And some other things were exchanged. And then he says, yeah, yeah, my second wife, he goes, he goes I'm just like, how did he say? He says, I'm just like David in the Bible. I looked over that balcony and I liked what I see. <laughs> my second wife tried to kill me, but I guess I don't kill too good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just like David. I looked over that balcony and I liked what I saw. So, really happened. And let me tell you this. Before the end of the meeting, I can't believe this is going to be out in the interweb forever now. I've only told the stories in small groups. Yeah, so before, yeah, it's out there. Before the end of the meeting, he asked us if we would make pledges to his ministry and gave us cards to pray about if we wanted to give money to his ministry. We didn't make a sale that day, um, but we had. I have a story to tell that I've been telling ever since. There's so much there. Now, later when we left, one of my buddies that was there with me and that I worked with, he had a great comment that he was afraid that if he answered yes, <laughs> that if you will take a bath on one other than your wife, this guy would have said, well, come on. <laughs> like, like maybe down the hall, there was something else going on. So <laughs> that's, there's like oh, top there's three or so four or five much. sales stories in my 22 years. And that's the top. We could take a whole episode dissecting that. Uh, oh, there's, it was a lot. There's a lot there. Well, but it's not our place to mm -mm. carry on about people. One other thing I thought I'd throw in just because I was looking at that list of cards. There is an active link on our website, onethingonly.org. Go to the history through the eyes of faith podcast page to purchase these flashcards. If oh. you, you would like to do that flashcards. Great. Yeah. And Thank they come really nicely packaged in a pretty box and easy oh, wow. to carry around. And right, yeah. Cool. Thank you everybody for listening. You've made it through 10 episodes and, uh, we will uh, look forward to getting you. Oh, by the way, there's a little nugget in episode seven that hasn't come out yet that well we'll wait and see we'll talk about it maybe in episode 11 well 7 comes out tomorrow right okay there's something in episode 7 that's going to be interesting we'll see okay. I think okay it might have been 6 alright we'll talk to y'all next time thanks for listening to History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast brought to you by One Thing Only find us online at onethingonly.org click on History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast for more information, reference material, our social media links, as well as a way to contact us to leave questions or comments. We will soon be streaming on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review. Thanks again for listening to History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast.